This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. Today, we hit the road, the road that will eventually bring this season to the podcast to a close. This road is a bit windy, but we will eventually come around the proverbial bend at the end, and we'll have a firm idea as to where we're headed. Or you could just look at the title, but where's the fun in that? But first, I'd like to extend a gigantic thank you to Adam H., Adam now has access to at least one extra episode per month as part of his support for the show, among other benefits. This week, in fact, Adam and our other awesome members get to enjoy the last episode of our first Patreon series about Poland's 11th century. Next month, we begin a new series, which will I will be sure to announce soon. So be like Adam H. and become a member and enjoy more content that will further inform you of our fascinating Middle Ages. I can't wait to hear from all of you. I love interacting with listeners, so don't be a stranger when you join. Reach out and say hi. Now, back to today's episode. Today's episode, episode 70, is entitled El Cid Part 4, The Road to Valencia. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. What a strange twist of fate it must have seemed to Rodrigo Diaz by the end of 1086. No doubt Rodrigo had heard of the horrific and humiliating defeat at the hands of the barbarians from North Africa back in October, and by December of 1086, just two months after the Battle of Sagrajas, he was reconciled with Alfonso VI back in Toledo. Richard Fletcher writes in the quest for El Cid, quote, We do not know who took the initiative. What is fairly clear is that Rodrigo would make his own terms. The king was desperate and was prepared, or could be bought, to pay Rodrigo handsomely for, return, for the returning of his service. End quote. Fletcher goes to quote from the Historia Rodrigi about the terms that were most likely settled between the men. The ancient chronicle stated that, quote, the king gave him the castle of Duanez with its dependents, and the castle of Gormaz and Ebia, and Campuo, and Egunia, and Briviesca, and Langa, which is in the western parts, together with all their territories and inhabitants, end quote. That's quite a, that's quite a haul right there. Now, Fletcher clarifies these terms explaining, quote, he, that is the chronicler of the Historia, Historia Rodrigi, may have been quoting from a royal charter. The word gave, or dedit in Latin, is probably to be taken as meaning entrusted the defense and or administration of to Rodrigo. The king was not alienating chunks of territory, but giving his vassal responsibility and lucrative employment. End quote. Okay, so Rodrigo Diaz wasn't exactly in sole ownership of the lands and estates, but he was the one put in charge of their defenses, thus enabling him, and him alone, to be the beneficiary of its people's tax revenue. Not bad, especially considering that money was most likely the driving force in Rodrigo's professional career, honor and fame coming as a byproduct. The Historia Rodrigi continues, though, quote, Furthermore, King Alfonso gave him this concession and privilege in his kingdom, written and confirmed under seal, by which all the land, and here, hear this, this is, this is crucial, by which all the land or castles which he himself might acquire from the Saracens, 
in the land of the Saracens should be absolutely his in full ownership. Not only his, but also his sons and daughters and all his descendants, end quote. And that's where we see the real leverage Rodrigo had over his king, King Alfonso VI. As Rodrigo Diaz pushed into Muslim, as they referred to as Saracens, by the way, as Rodrigo pushed into Muslim Al-Andalus and gained control over those lands and cities and even castles, he was also given royal permission to assume ownership of them. That's huge. And from the phrase in the Historia, quote, unquote, should be absolutely his in full ownership, well, that gave Rodrigo royal permission to begin carving out his own principality separate from Alfonso's. Alfonso would never have offered such terms, which again shows the massive amount of leverage Rodrigo held, as well as how desperate Alfonso was for quality leadership on the battlefield after Sagrajas. As Fletcher sums it up pretty nicely, quote-unquote, it was a vassal's market, Rodrigo could call the tune. But Rodrigo wasn't the only prominent knight to gain a considerable foothold of power and influence within the Castilian kingdom. Just before Sagrajas, as Fletcher said, Alfonso had written to his wife's kin in the Duchy of Burgundy in southern France. From this, he received help in the form of a number of knights and foot soldiers being led by Duke Odo of Burgundy himself. This was a power move for sure, as Odo was the nephew of Queen Constance of France, thus proving once again what we'd learned a couple episodes ago about Fernando I's moves to invite Cluniac monks and bishops into Christian Iberia and how that would continue to forge new bonds between France and those kingdoms out west for decades to come. Now, within Duke Odo's contingent was Odo's younger cousin, Raymond of Burgundy, an able and intelligent commander. After Sagrajas, Raymond ultimately ended up serving under Alfonso VI and eventually married Alfonso's only child, his daughter, thus tying Burgundy to Castile and Leon pretty closely. Raymond and Uraca were married, and Raymond instantly became Count Raymond of Galicia, as well as Alfonso's immediate successor to the throne, as Uraca was Alfonso's, again, only legitimate child. Talk about a meteoric rise and a connection between the kingdom of Leon and Castile with France. Now, over the next two or three years, unfortunately, we have no way of knowing exactly what Rodrigo Diaz was up to. He kind of disappeared. After his reconciliation with King Alfonso VI, well, we can fairly confidently assume that he might have toured his, his new lands, consolidated loyalties everywhere he went, maybe began collecting some of his newfound revenue, paying out a little extra to his most loyal knights who had stuck with him all those years in exile maybe even doled out some of that land to those same knights throughout his lands to ensure loyalties stuck when he was away. So let's assume that's what El Cid, the living legend, was doing between early 1087 and 1089. Now, during that time, we know of a few other things happening, which we'll need to know as we move forward. Setting the stage, Alfonso was still king and ruling out of his new trophy of Toledo, the sophomoric effort of bringing some version of a Cordoba back to the peninsula. Rodrigo, as we said, was most likely on a grand tour of his new territories. 
The Taifas were back home, maybe feeling pretty good about their, uh, about the cowing of their Christian overlord, and having also suffered incredibly heavy losses at Sagrajas, the other living legend in the far European West, Yusuf ibn Tashfin, had limped his army back across the Strait of Gibraltar onto native soil to regroup, recover, and rethink. But this doesn't mean things were all quiet on the Western Front. And I use that term quite deliberately because the 1080s, though they don't get credit for their role in the coming storm of Christian-Muslim hostilities, were in fact the front lines of what would become the Crusades. This is specifically why I've decided to flesh this season of the podcast out so deeply. This, right here in Iberia, ever increasingly so as the 11th century wore on, was a large part of the context that fed into the European fervor to push into the Holy Lands in the late 1090s. Okay, all that said, what was actually happening in the years we lose sight of Rodrigo Diaz's movements, the years of 1087 to 1089? That's the question. What was happening? Well, first of all, Alfonso, licking his wounds, heard word of his Almoravid enemies retreating back across the strait. And Alfonso wanted to keep an eye on on this dangerous foe to the best of his abilities, so he ordered a contingent of Castilians to man the castle near Aledo, far to the southeast of the peninsula. But manning this castle to keep tabs on the Almoravids was only one reason— It gets just a bit hairy here, but try to stay with me. See, after Alfonso took Toledo through through that backroom deal with its current tyrannical and unpopular emir Al-Qadir, both were able to save face, Alfonso and Al-Qadir. Alfonso took the city with zero bloodshed, and Al-Qadir was given the city and surrounding territory of Valencia on the eastern Mediterranean coast of Iberia. Heard it's beautiful there. Well... Al-Qadir was just as unpopular in Valencia as he was in Toledo. It didn't matter, though, as according to the deal with Alfonso, Al-Qadir enjoyed Castilian support. Now, nearby Murcia, a taifa ruled by the emir Al-Hayib, sorry, try that again, a taifa ruled by the emir Al-Hayib, was harassing the weakened Valencia and creating a sense of impending doom for both Al-Qadir as well as his Valencians. In addition to this, Al-Hayib of Murcia was also in open rebellion against his Sevillan overlords. And after learning of the treachery committed by Seville's Emir Al-Mutamid and how he actually invited and supported the Almoravids against Alfonso, well, Seville wasn't exactly on Alfonso's Christmas letter list in the late 1080s after Sagrajas. This castle at Aledo also served as a jumping-off point for Castilian soldiers to support Al-Hayib's rebellion against Seville, while also reining in Al-Hayib's harassment of Valencia. I know, it's kind of weird. But hey, if you haven't heard, if you haven't learned the mind-boggling politics of the 11th century Iberia at this point, I'm not sure what to tell you. It's all just strange. But as Fletcher adds, according to chronicler Abd Allah, quote, The inhabitants of the area around Aledo were for the most part Christians who were willing to supply the garrison with necessities. So we can't jump on Alfonso, as some commentators do at this point, and just dismiss his garrison of Aledo as a bad move. 
It seems logical and even calculated, though it was quite a ways away from the Castilian support network should something, goes, sh- should something go down. Fletcher recounts his ultimate opinion on the matter with a little evidence to back up his claim, too. He says, quote, The Christian garrison at Aledo had exactly the disruptive effect upon the area which the king had hoped for. A poet from the court of Al-Mutamid named Abd al-Jalil was killed while traveling between Lorca and Murcia in 1088. Well, there were Christian losses, too. One of the miracle stories of Santo Domingo de Silos concerns a Castilian knight named Pedro de Yantara, who was captured by the Saracens near Aledo and kept in cap- captivity in Murcia for two years until the saint organized a miraculous escape. The story of, the, of his capture is introduced casually in words that convey vividly the spirit of the operations round Aledo. Pedro had left the safety of the castle, quote-unquote, for a few days ravaging, end quote of Fletcher's. So Aledo seemed like a place meant to just cast a side glance at North Africa and to disrupt the goings-on between the taifas to Alfonso South, but it seemed like the knights there also made a career of it as well, like this Pedro de Yantada, who just went for a few days ravaging, but the dangers were ever-present as he was captured and held prisoner for a number of years. Now, switching our attentions to Seville, Alfonso's treacherous vassal, Emir al-Mutadid, in 1088, left the shores of Iberia and traveled the seven miles across the strait. He was on a mission, only in person this time, to make contact with Yusuf ibn Tashfin and his Almoravids once again. Something clicked with ibn Tashfin as he limped away a year and a half earlier, because in March of 1089... Al-Mutamid accompanied Ibn Tashfin as the entire Almoravid army crossed back into Iberia and were hosted in Seville once again. Granada and Almeria met the pair back in Seville along with Muslim nobility across the southern taifas. Negotiations of which we know next to nothing were held and before anyone could even blink, the castle at Aledo was under siege by Yusuf ibn Tashfin and his Almoravids. Upon the news arriving from Aledo, Afonso VI wasted no time, and with vengeance in his eyes, he summoned all his forces to his side, including El Cid, Rodrigo Diaz. Now this is when Rodrigo appears back in the records, and we see him in a village called Requena, just 40 miles straight west of Valencia. We can safely assume that Alfonso had moved his ablest warrior within striking distance of both taifas in order to bring some semblance of order to the eastern region on the peninsula, and judging by the cooled tensions between Al-Hayib's Mercia and Al-Qadir's Valencia in those years, the Cid's mere presence was pretty effective. But it was time to move from Requena. I'll let Fletcher relate what happened next as it served as yet another miscommunication between the two biggest figures in Christian Iberia that would have, la- that would have lasting consequences. Fletcher writes, quote, Something went wrong, and the two Christian contingents failed to converge. As far as the campaign was concerned, this did not matter, for the Almoravid forces withdrew at the approach of the royal army, and the king was able to relieve 
and reinforce Aledo as he had planned, but as far as Rodrigo's personal fortunes were concerned, it mattered very much. His enemies were quick to claim that his failure to join forces with the king was deliberate and that he had thereby treacherously endangered the royal army. Alfonso believed the accusation. He confiscated all Rodrigo's property and imprisoned, though only for a short time, his wife and children. Rodrigo drafted an elaborate justification for his actions, transmitted verbatim by his biographer, and offered to defend himself not only by oath, but also by the judicial process of trial by combat, a mode of proof recently introduced from France into Spain, associated especially with accusations of treason in the circles of the military aristocracy. End quote. Now, once again, we see proof of Fernando's work a generation earlier. And no, I'm not going to stop pointing these moments of continental European influence seeping into Iberian customs. I'm not going to stop it because as for Iberian history, Fernando's work defined the next thousand years. So yeah, it is what it is. Anyway, trial by combat deserves no eye roll either. In more recent times, we may point to the practice of dueling as the same thing. Americans would no doubt think of Aaron Burr's killing of Alexander Hamilton during a duel, which was called, which was called due to an issue of one's personal honor. Even more recently, we might include a 1980s dance-off like Shabadoo, Boogaloo Shrimp, and Lucinda Dickey bo- body-popping electric rock into breakdancing oblivion in the 1984 movie Breakin'. No? How about the hand jive from Greece? Okay, fine. The goat, Eminem, and 8 Mile. But that's as far as I'll take this crazy tangent. You get the idea. Either way, the French had brought trial by combat into Iberia and Rodrigo Diaz was using it to prove his innocence. The king apparently didn't bite and cast off, Rod- er, cast off Rodrigo. Down, but not out, as Fletcher says. Rodrigo wintered on the river Elche between the typhus of Murcia and Alicante. And to quote Fletcher, quote, his biographer let it slip that after the campaign was over, he allowed certain of his knights, whom he had brought with them from Castile, to return to their homes. Well, decoded, this means that some of his own followers thought he was finished. End quote. However, after everything we've learned about Rodrigo, we should never count this guy out. Though Alfonso had released his family back to him, Rodrigo was still without property. And a knight without a source of income was no knight at all, really. So his first priority was to keep his band together as best as he could. Translated, this means he needed to make some moves, as he had so many times in the past. Now, he wasn't exiled like he had been, which put him on the outside of Alfonso's control. So he needed to be very judicious about how he would proceed. He couldn't turn south because Alfonso's men at Aledo were well aware of Rodrigo's situation and wouldn't allow him to raid at will. Immediately to his west was Toledo. And, um, yeah, no, no question that was out. But remember where he had spent the previous year, at least for a portion of it, Requena. He knew Al-Hayib city of Denia. He had come into control of both Mercia and Denia, I should clarify, Al-Hayib did. He knew that city of Denia was, fa- was fairly vulnerable. So, Denia it was. Between March and April of 1090, Rodrigo laid a walloping on the territory, forcing Al-Hayib to quickly call for peace with Rodrigo Diaz. 
Cha-ching. Next, Valencia, just north of Denia, was another area Rodrigo was able to scout out the year before in, in a peacekeeping effort, not, not the same efforts he's doing now. So, Valencia it was. And it was so quick and devastating that the already very unpopular Al-Qadir also bought him off. But in the meantime, without Al-Qadir's knowledge, he was also accepting money and loyalties from Valencian rebels who sought Al-Qadir's overthrow. Now hold on to that little nugget, would you? Okay, here's the rub. By buying off Rodrigo Diaz, Al-Hayib had essentially replaced King Alfonso VI because, in effect, Rodrigo wouldn't attack him if he was paid, right? Well, that's painfully similar to the idea of Parias, where you pay an overlord to protect you from being attacked. Rodrigo had just tricked Al-Hayib into his own Parias, or, in Ethelredian terms, Danegeld. But that's not all. By having Al-Qadir Valencia do the same, Rodrigo undermined, in the same way, Al-Qadir's overlord, which wasn't King Alfonso VI of Leon and Castile. Nope. Al-Qadir's overlord, though he enjoyed support from Alfonso VI, his overlord that he paid was none other than Count Berenger of Barcelona. Brilliant play, Rodrigo. Now, Fletcher writes, quote, Berenger was perhaps the most dangerous, as the nearer of the two and the less distracted by other commitments. Al-Hayib had appealed to Berenger for help after Rodrigo's passage through the Denia region. Together, they planned to assemble a coalition against him to consist of Castile, Zaragoza, Aragon, and Urgell. Now, the Count of Urgell and King Sancho of Aragon would not come in. Al-Musta'in of Zaragoza affected to accede, but secretly leaked the news to Rodrigo of his enemy's plans, end quote. Now that's insane. The plan was to have the full might of the taifas of Murcia, Denia, Zaragoza, and Urgell, along with the county of Barcelona, the kingdoms of Aragon, and the kingdom of Leon and Castile, all to take out a roving band of errant knights under the leader of one man named Rodrigo Diaz. That's in and of itself, it just goes to show just how seriously the entire peninsula took this man. In the meantime, though, having retreated from the siege of Alfonso's castle at Aledo, Yusuf ibn Tashfin and his Almoravid army all but severed any loyalties with Seville and the other taifas he had met with and negotiated terms uh, with just over a year earlier. Ibn Tashfin had the support of most of the Andalusian people as they've all pretty much gotten sick and tired of being taxed into oblivion by their own emirs, just so those emirs could pay some other guy up north, a Christian no less. But Ibn Tashfin was thinking something completely different than that, which wasn't even on the Andalusian radar. We can't forget who these Almoravids were. Think back to those previous episodes for a moment. I know it's been a few episodes, but who they are and what informed and drove their entire existence as an organized movement within Islam was the idea that Islam had lost its way among the Berbers of West Africa and most of the Maghreb. They'd become too complacent. Many Berber tribes adhered to some Muslim practices, called themselves Muslims, 
but they also kept some of their former customs. I mean, that was absolutely forbidden in Islam. It's all or nothing, period. When the Almoravid Berbers popped in and out of Al-Andalus over the 1080s, Ibn Tashfin and pretty much every other Almoravid witnessed the decadence and the complacency of Andalusian Muslim lifestyles. From taifa to taifa, they saw this unorthodox and, quite frankly, shameful behavior and were sickened to their cores by it. So after taking a bit of beating himself after Sagrahas, victory or not, Ibn Tashfin returned under the guise of helping again. But he'd cast off his earlier thoughts about not conquering Al-Andalus, now adopting that sentiment's opposite wholeheartedly. But he wasn't just conquering Al-Andalus. Ibn Tashfin was liberating these lost Muslims. He was bringing them safely back into the light of Allah, by force if necessary. It was a mission of mercy, as far as he was concerned. So while Rodrigo Diaz was disrupting things in Denia and Valencia, Ibn Tashfin was disrupting the taifas to the south. No, he wasn't disrupting them. He was just taking them over. And by taking them over, he was disrupting one thing, Alfonso's source of income. Ibn Tashfin wasn't even about to send Alfonso Parias, that's for sure. And when approached to join the coalition against Rodrigo Diaz, King Alfonso VI was forced to decline because of these reasons. He, he needed to keep all his forces on standby because, because an inevitable showdown could happen at any moment. So as Fletcher states, quote, Berenger was on his own, but he was still formidable. He gathered a large army, staffed by some of his most experienced commanders, such men as Geraldo Alamin de Cervallo and Dudat Bernat de Claremont. Rodrigo, watching the preparations with misgivings, t- retreated into the mountainous region near Morela. He established his camp there in a position of great natural strength. End quote. And while the ensuing battle between El Cid and Count Berenger of Barcelona ended up in a resounding victory by, by Rodrigo Diaz. Ibn Tashfin, they learned later, had moved on Toledo itself in a bold move. A very bold move. And they laid siege to Toledo, albeit eventually unsuccessfully. But things were only heating up on the peninsula, believe it or not. And we'll leave it with a passage from Brian Catlus's Kingdoms of Faith that will be our launching off point for the next and last episode of our story of Rodrigo Diaz, the legend that was Spain's national hero, El Cid. Catlos writes, quote, This respite emboldened Al-Musta'in of Zaragoza, who now considered conquering Muslim Valencia himself. But his mercenary captain, Rodrigo Diaz, tired of his life of exile and despairing of ever returning to Alfonso's good graces, and to his homeland of Castile, had settled on the same goal. It was over Valencia that that the Cid, Alfonso, Al-Musta'in, the Count of Barcelona, and the newly arrived Almoravids would all come to odds. End quote. Up next, the conclusion of El Cid's story. I can't wait to tell you about it. <laughs>